I'm Eric Bricker, and I've been a psychotherapist for over 25 years. One thing I can tell you for certain is that no one makes it through life unscathed. At some point, many of us will rely on the trusted counsel of another person to help us navigate difficult times, or to reconcile a troubled past. Whether conventional or unconventional, professional or informal, there are a lot of different forms that helping relationships can take. This podcast is an exploration into what makes these relationships work. Who are the people that help us? How do they help us? And what do people need help with? My hope is to uncover as much as I can about this very human phenomenon, and I hope that you'll join me. This is the Good Counsel Podcast. Hello, everybody. I'm Eric Bricker, and this is the Good Counsel Podcast. Today, I am joined by my good friend, psychotherapist Jill Brashad. Jill, thank you so much for coming in and joining me today. Thank you so much, Eric. I'm really excited to be here to talk with you about such an important topic. You know, Jill, there's so much that uh, we could be covering today. To anybody that knows you, you have a pretty rich background in a lot of different specialties in psychotherapy. You are a hypnotherapist, you are an EMDR therapist, you are a certified Reiki master, which I have a lot of questions about. (laughs) I mean, we could take this in all different kinds of directions as far as wanting to know about your specialties. But the thing that we were hoping to tackle today is really about what happens with helping professionals when they have their own personal tragedies and how we manage that and at what point after a personal tragedy are we appropriate to come back and deal with the traumas of other people and how as a helping professional and a psychotherapist do you manage something like this so i'm going to kind of turn that over to you and you can pick where in there you think is appropriate to begin Sure, sure. So for anybody who doesn't know, my husband, Adam, he he chose to take his own life. It's been about nine months. And just a little background, he was diagnosed with a brain tumor and he had surgery and he was doing well. And unfortunately, he developed a lot of scar tissue around his brain, and he really became quite debilitated by this situation to the point where he was having several seizures a day, he couldn't work, he couldn't drive, he couldn't engage in his hobbies, he was training for marathons, he liked to, he was a wine connoisseur. And for anybody who knew Adam, he was a very proud man. And unfortunately, this was the the journey, the path that he was put on. And he was suffering quite a bit and um, was also on, on medication that had a lot to do with his choice. And when I say choice, I'm not sure how much of a choice it really was. I don't, not sure that it was a conscious or rational choice but I know that he was very proud and I know he was a very loving 
husband and father, and he, with the quote unquote help of the medication and everything else that was happening to him, he did not want his family to watch him suffer any further. I have to imagine for such a capable man, he was a successful businessman yes. with a wide range of interests yes. and someone who was very well-respected and well-liked in the community. But this was a guy who operated in the world with a very strong mind. Absolutely. He was an intelligent man who knew a lot about a lot of different things. And I can only imagine when you're thinking and your processing gets compromised. Mm-hmm. But you still have a level of awareness around that. Like, you know who you are. You just can't access your own capability. You just can't process in the way that you're used to. Right. Or do the things that you know you should be able to do. What that experience is like for somebody. What that actually feels like to be in that body trying to manage that experience. Right, absolutely. I imagine there was a lot of suffering. A lot of suffering. A lot of suffering. Towards towards the end, Adam would sit on the couch and he would watch documentaries and and journal. And he actually had just kicked off his own podcast to share with the world what his experience had been and how he could help others. Because he was... A very spiritual man. He was um, he he was a a teacher, per se. He was a leader, and he really wanted other people to learn from his experience. But I can't possibly pretend to understand what it felt like inside of his body or inside of his brain. I just know that he would sit and he would prepare podcasts and he would watch documentaries while he watched the whole world go on around him. Watch myself and my children in and out, working, doing, but he wasn't really capable of doing those things anymore because stress and too much exertion, heat, um, heat, uh, too much exercise, being in water, he couldn't go in the pool, would all cause seizures. I would just like to say, this is a little off topic, but I would like to say that I was so blessed to be be able to share a very special and sacred time with him just days prior in Sedona, Arizona, one of the most spiritual and beautiful places I've ever been to in my life. And I'll forever hold those memories in my heart and soul. And I'd like to say that I'm very, very grateful. I was telling Eric that I have always led with gratitude. I've always been a spiritual person. I also was saying to Eric, this is a great time to be a spiritual person, to be able to pull on those resources. And I continue more so than ever before to lead with gratitude, with light, with love, with life, with life. I have three children, and I know that Adam would never want us to stop living 
and to live our best life, lives, and that's what we're all really trying to do, to honor him. We live in a culture that is very much death-denying. It is a subject that is not often discussed. I don't think children really receive much in the way of any kind of structured preparation for an experience that is really universal and inevitable for all living things. So most people are informed about death when someone they know or close to actually dies. And in that process, there are different types of deaths. And in my work, I, I really kind of divide it up into two categories, which are sort of regular deaths, which would be, say, you know, grandpa passes away at the appropriate age, and most of the, the people in grandpa's life are younger than him, and it seems like it follows something that we experience as being natural. And then there are other types of deaths, tragic deaths, and highly stigmatized deaths. And dying by suicide is in that category of a stigmatized death. And for the survivor of that, the person like yourself, there is something qualitatively different about that experience. And I've seen a lot of people in the course of my career and my life who've had to manage that experience. But I really want to tell you, Jill, that your handling of all that I regard as exceptional and admirable on so many different levels that if God forbid anyone that I knew was to experience something similar, I would really regard you as this is how I would hope to to handle something like this. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, I'm just, this isn't something that's forced. This is just me and it's rolling out organically. And I believe deeply in self-care. I believe deeply in balance. And I am back at work. I've been for several, several months now and work actually really fills my bucket. And, and I have to say that when you experience a tragedy like this, for me anyway, the work is so elevated with my clients um, because I can relate in so many different ways that I wasn't able to in the past. So I was eager to get back to work. Work really, like I said, it, it fills my bucket and and it feels good to help others. But I also know that I have to take care of myself personally. And I do that by spending time in nature. I do that by spending time with people who, um, you know, help me to elevate and connection has been so critical and such a precious gift through this process. I do that by setting boundaries um, with people, with myself, with honoring my body. Uh, if I know that I need to rest, that's what I do. 
I try to lead by example for my children. I try to live by example for the community, for my friends, for my clients. And I just really every day wake up every morning and just try to live as the best version of myself. On the topic of boundaries, I remember back at the funeral, you got up and you told everybody in attendance there, and there were a lot of people at Adam's funeral. That's what I'm told. (laughs) There were a lot, like a few hundred people for sure. And you got up and you said to everybody, some of you people are talking. Some of you people are gossiping. Some of you people are getting caught up in speculation and rumors. And we're not going to get into any of that today. And I would like you people to stop <laughs> talking. And let's just focus on what we're here to focus on, which is honoring the memory of my husband. You know, it was amazing that you got up there. So you talk about setting boundaries. You got up there and just sort of shut that all down. Mm-hmm. And um, look, I mean, it's not appropriate to give standing ovations at funerals and stuff. I think people kind of frown on that sort of thing at the temple. <laughs> I think but, so. <laughs> but um, I don't know if we could have done it. I would have. In my mind, that's what was going on. I just think it was such an exceptional thing to actually make explicit that implied thinking. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the problem with stigmas in general, right, is that there are these things that occur that we feel we cannot talk about. And I think you went right to it from the beginning. And I truly believe or I imagine that that must have in some way set a tone for how you and your family were going to manage this thing outside of any sense of secrecy or accelerated need for privacy, Mm -hmm. particularly when that would have made the rest of the process that much more difficult because now you have this big detail that people are speculating over that you have to hide and you just kind of took care of all that on day one uh setting a tone which i i do believe kind of shaped everything that happened after it for what appears to me to be the better right absolutely and and i have to say that that was very impromptu i had no plans to to say that that's just what came out and I didn't do it because I wanted to make it easier on myself or my family to manage the the talk I did it because it was so important to me and my family that my husband's life be honored and that people remembered his life and not his death and we both know that people when people are given material uh, to talk about and to gossip about, there's a lot of people in the community that will take that opportunity. But I didn't want my husband to be the topic of that of that talk of the town. And I believe that my husband was a wonderful man and he was a big presence in the community. And I just firmly believe that he deserved to be remembered for that and not for for the death. And if there's anything that I can do is I will continue to to try and 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 focus on managing that where people do focus on all of the wonderful things that he offered this community and not 
you know, how he died or, or anything else. It's just, you know, let's have integrity. You know, let's have integrity. Let's have respect. I think this is, should never be a topic of gossip. And I don't think that there should ever be a stigma around this. And I think that the number of people who are choosing, again, choosing is a very loose word, who who do end up taking their life, I think it's happening more and more, as we know. And I think a big part of that is because there has been a stigma around it, and it's I'm not going to keep quiet about it and 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 um, keep that stigma. Whatever I can do to stop that, I'll do. I have always experienced you as a person that was very self-aware. Mm-hmm. And I think even a lot of that is coming through in the things that you're saying here today. That understanding your own needs during a period like this is pretty important. And I think it's something that not a lot of people have access to, right? Like a lot of people don't know what they need when we're overwhelmed with emotion and the chaos of of an event like this. What for you has been the most critical piece or pieces to help you maintain your balance, your sense of wellness? Like how do you, how have you healed from this? Well, I don't know that I am healed from this. I believe that this is going to be a long journey, but I, I feel that I am in in a healthy place around it. Um, I, again, I think there's not one thing. I think that I take a lot of time for myself. Again, my my supportive circle that I have around me, I just, forever, whoever hears this, I wanna say thank you from the bottom of my heart. They have lifted me up for the last nine months, and I'm so grateful to every single person who's done that. And again, I I I take quiet time. I meditate. I I'm in nature. I again set boundaries with people that I don't think are going to be good for me to be around. I I have no problem saying no. I'm very protective of my. Uh, for lack of a better word, my energy field. I don't watch the news. Um, I'm trying to tend to my nervous system just to the best of my ability. And I think that the things that I've been doing are working because I feel very grounded throughout this process. Yeah, I get that. I think that's that's what we're we're talking about. How did you gauge your own readiness to return to practice? as far as the self-care and self-awareness that's required in order to be able to do the kind of psychotherapy that you practice, which is high-level specialty. It's very intense. You're dealing with a lot of trauma survivors and people who struggle with very difficult things. I work with similar population. Mm -hmm. And at times, this type of work can evoke very strong emotions in us and it's important to be well and kind of healthy if you're going mm-hmm, to be. Mm-hmm. And coming from this tragic situation and again, managing your own self-care, how do you gauge your own readiness to practice? How did you negotiate all of that with yourself? 
So I'll be very honest. I, well, first of all, it, a lot of it was based on intuition and just the somatic experience that I was having at that time. It, it like I said, it was a, it, almost an intuitive decision, but also I found that the longer that I stayed home, the worse off I was. And the more I stayed home, the less energy I had, the harder it was for me to get up and move around. And I knew that I needed the routine of work. And like I said earlier, I love my work. I look forward to seeing my clients and doing the work with them and walking down that path together side by side. And and it, it definitely, when I did go back, it was the right time. It was good for my physical health, for my emotional health, for my spiritual health. And also, I have the type of relationship with my clients where we have a very um, a beautiful rapport. And I knew that whatever time I needed, I could take. And nobody was going anywhere. And... That wasn't really a concern at the time. That's not what I was thinking about. But that's what happened. We just jumped right back in. And it was very, it was helpful. It was fulfilling to be there. And uh, and I'm glad it all unfolded the way it did in terms of work. And, and I know that if I need to take time off, I take time off. Which I've done. And I'll do again. Because things certainly come up, and I, like I said earlier, I have three children, and um, they need me, and they're my first priority, myself and my my kids. And uh, every day is a new day. You know, I wake up every morning, and I say, I definitely live, you know, one day at a time, and sometimes one hour at a time, and. If I need something on a particular day that wasn't scheduled in, I, I make it happen because I know that, like they say on the airplane, you got to put the oxygen mask on yourself first. And I do that. And it's all worked out. It's all worked out beautifully. And um, like I said, I don't know that I would do anything differently. I like what you said about intuition. And I think that's really the kind of quality of a person who does their own work, right? Of like a clinician who does their own work is that there's a degree of self-awareness. Absolutely. And attention to that, that tells you when you're okay and not okay. And that you rely on that. Like you trust that even during this difficult period, you were willing to trust that and know that it was the right time and it was actually more healthy for you to engage with work and that maybe spending too much time in a more sedentary position at home was actually harmful in some oh, way. Oh, it absolutely was. That was very clear to me. And I also want to mention that when you go through, when I go through an experience like this, I mean, it's obviously, it's life-changing. And prior to this time, I had a very hard time asking for what I needed. I could do everything on my own. And unfortunately, when you lose a spouse and you have three kids and you're taking care of a lot, there's been a lot on my plate, 
you got to bring in the troops, right? It takes a village. And Eric, I don't know if you remember, but very early on, I called you and our good friend Adam Saslov and I said, I need you guys to come over. We need to have a jam session. I need music. That's going to elevate my soul. And you guys made it happen and we rocked out and it was it was a really memorable time. And I, again, I'll be forever grateful because I knew that's what I needed. Music is, a, is big for me. And especially to be able to, to jam with my good friends, it was so elevating. And we're going to have to do that again soon, my friend. Yeah, that's a big honor when someone says that there's some part of what you contribute mm-hmm. in relationship that would be meaningful in a moment like this. Absolutely. But I knew that you had something that would help me in that moment and I had no problem asking you for it and I'm glad I did. I wish I had learned earlier in my life to ask for what I needed, but you know, we all sometimes it takes a little longer and I definitely have gotten so much better at that. And that I have to say, you've you've asked me what's really helped me through this process is really learning to reach out and ask people for what I need. And, and people can say no, by the way, but you never know unless you ask. I find that it's uh, what really works for me is to just not ask for what I need and then <laughs> complain a lot when I don't get it, be really upset and right. resentful towards people. That's fun, too. Yeah, I'm not willing to do my life like that anymore. No. Uh-uh. Okay. No. No. We only have so much time on, on this fear sphere uh in our physical bodies and uh, i want to make the most of every every moment so i have definitely stepped into my power and i ask for what i need and i again i just try to live my best life as the best version of myself every day and i call on those things that i know are going to lift me up like music like being with friends i feel like when people experience these types of tragedies one thing that uh, evolves out of that is more of a sense of priority over immediacy and more of a kind of reevaluation on what I do with my time. Absolutely. Maybe a, a greater sense of value of the present and these moments, which, by the way, was really kind of like the theme of Adam's podcast, right? It was yes. about the present. Yes, it was, it was called The Present Moment Project. Yes. And that was really what he was he was trying to say is that being present for the moments is is very important. I remember he and I talked about that uh, quite a bit because I I was already doing this right. uh, good counsel, and so he was doing pods. We talked about uh, what he was going to do and uh, his sense of enthusiasm mm-hmm. around that. And it's kind of amazing because I sort of saw that in him right up into the end, and I mm-hmm. think that's what made all of this sort of surprising to me. Absolutely. Because even as he was sick and suffering as he was, he was still like a great host. Mm-hmm. You know, you go to his house and this is my favorite whiskey glass and all these things. Like <laughs> right. I was still right up into the last months of his life. We it's were, true. These we were and we were having he was entertaining people. Yes. You know, and sharing the things that he loved the most with them, which was really Absolutely. Just such a, a cool thing, like came over uh, with you to meet my new puppies. Mm-hmm. I have pictures of that. And this is all what was going on toward toward the end of everything. So 
when you talk about the idea of choice or not choice, I feel like I sort of understand what you're saying because to me in those last times that I saw him, he did not look like a person who was giving up on something. You're absolutely correct. I mean, that's my perspective from really outside. No, your perspective is spot on. I mean, he was, the night before he had scheduled a poker game, he was in a weekly poker game with the same guys for probably the past maybe 15 years. And he had scheduled a poker game the night before. He had, he bought himself an electric scooter to get around Boca because he couldn't drive. He had scheduled a haircut, I think that day. So... Yeah, it was a quite a surprise to all of us. What would you say to somebody who might be listening to this that experienced something similar? What would you want a person like that to know from your experience? That's a loaded question, Eric. <laughs> There's a lot to say about that. You know, I, I would say that everybody is definitely on their own journey. I believe that there's something much bigger out there than than us. And, um, you know, one thing that Adam had shared, he had shared a, a couple of thoughts that he left for, for me and my children. You know, he wanted to meet up with his parents again, who are both deceased. And, um, you know, work out some kinks that they had in their relationship. And I think it's just important to know that all you can really do is live your best life every day, take advantage of every moment that we're given, and just love and support. Make sure you tell people you love them, not just tell them, act in a way that they know that you love them and support them. And there's really beyond that, there's, you know, I think there's a, there's a misconception that we have more control over things than we actually do. And of course, we know that we can't control other people and we can only control ourselves. And um, I don't think that there would have been any stopping Adam at that point. He was a very passionate man, just like you were saying, up until the end, he was still excited about his whiskey, although he really couldn't drink it, but he wanted to share it with all the people that he loved. And just, just be aware, just be aware, you know, keep your eyes open. Don't get so wrapped up in life's idiosyncrasies. Life can be so beautiful. And I think people get so wrapped up in the hamster wheel and in, in things that are so unimportant, like whether your husband left the toilet seat up or not, or put the dishes away, or that's not really what's important. It's not. And we only have a very, you know, and finite amount of time and use it purposefully, consciously and intentionally. And I was telling you before, Eric, that of course we all miss Adam terribly and, and I wish to God that he never had a brain tumor. And, but I'm so grateful from the depths of my core that he is no longer suffering and that he is at peace. And I have a very close friend, um, her name's Shandel, and she said something to me. I think it was the day after Adam had passed away that has stu stuck with me for quite some time. And she said, 
Adam has such a bright light and he would shine it on everybody who met him and on the community. And when your body is broken, it's hard to, the light, the light of your soul is dimmed. And now that his body is at peace, his light can continue to shine. And that gave me so much peace in my heart when I heard that. And I can't tell you how many people have reached out to me and said, I wanted to let you know that I just got a call from somebody. I just ended up with this dream job because of something Adam did, or that I've started training for marathons and I've been able to get off my blood pressure medication, or I mean, the stories, can I can give you tons of stories like that. So his light is still shining everywhere. That's uh, quite a legacy. It, it is. must be quite a legacy for you to continue getting that feedback from all these it's, people. It is. It's such a gift. It's such a gift. I get it all the time. That's really uh, something special, I think. Absolutely. And I, you know, I want to say that, you know, Nobody's perfect. Adam wasn't perfect. We obviously didn't have the perfect marriage. I don't know who does. But in Adam's core, he was such a good man and all he wanted to do was help people. That's really, that was a big part of his character. That's a pretty exceptional legacy to leave behind, Mm -hmm. especially when apparently there were so many people that were actually impacted by his his work and his effort. Yes. And I know his job, he was... uh, kind of like a business consultant and mm-hmm. a coach and mm-hmm. think helped launch and accelerate like a bunch of people's career. Yes. Yeah. Careers absolutely. and entrepreneurial pursuits and all these things that people were doing. Yes, that's right. And he was pretty effective in that. He was brilliant. He really was. He, his, his brain was something I had never, <laughs> I had never encountered before. He had quite a business mind. And he, he knew how to lead people in a, you know, with the, with the exactly right kind of balance. How about you these days? What are you up to? <laughs> What's, what are you doing with yourself? So, like I said, I have three kids and um, I, I work. I take care of my kids. I take care of my home. I have two dogs who are a huge source of strength for me. Um, they are my emotional support animals. Those are some sweet dogs. They are, they are, they are very sweet dogs. And uh, I always look forward to seeing them at the end of a day and spending time with them. And they have been such a gift throughout this period of time in my life. And, uh, but I do make sure that I take time for myself, but it really is all about balance. I try not to commit to too much too far in advance. Um, I, you know, have traveled. Travel always fills my bucket. I, I, I think I said a couple of times, nature really is very grounding for me. It's a very peaceful, very peaceful for me to be in nature. And, uh, and I'm doing okay. I really am doing okay. And listen, I know that there's good days and not so good days, but I take it, I roll with it. I, I do what I have to do with each day. And I'm not afraid to, you know, confront whatever the day presents. You know, I was thinking about the dogs. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was at your house shortly after our dog Rocky had passed away. 
And it was really the first time I'd been around dogs since she died. And I forget which of your two dogs it was, but came to me. And you know, when you're in a crowd of people and the dog just sort of finds you mm-hmm. and didn't just find me, it was put her head on me. It was like very involved with me, you know? <laughs> right. And we were saying, we wondered like that sometimes they could just sort of tell. Oh, they can absolutely tell. And on that note, let me say that my dogs have not been the same since Adam passed away. I mean, my, my older dog, who's going to be 10 next month, he actually, well, he sleeps in Adam's spot. Every night, he starts barking at the exact time of night that my husband passed away. It's pretty, it's pretty powerful. It's, it's really pretty powerful. It's, it's sad. I mean, it's sad. It's sad for the dogs. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. It's sad to see them sad and missing him. Yeah, they have their own way of kind of conceptualizing, and I'm sure they're looking for him. Right. Sort of like waiting for him to return the way they might be waiting for him to come home from work or something. Right. And I'm really glad that they have each other. I took I took one out. Actually, the other day I had to take one of the dogs to my office because I was doing work with a, a young girl who has a fear of dogs. So I brought my dog to the office uh, to help her through her fear. And, and I'm proud to say and really happy to say she's now fine with dogs oh nice i love seeing that because everybody should have dogs in their life (laughs) they offer so much um but the little one could not be consoled for a long time because he was home alone without the other one so i realized i don't think he can ever be an only child i think i'm gonna have to get another one one day oh well I'll have to get another one. <laughs> yeah, that, it's you didn't have that, to twist my arm. It's not that terrible of, no. of a prospect to imagine bringing a puppy into your it's house. It's not. He ju- the dog just has to be potty trained before they come to my house. Because <laughs> that's what. Because again, that's a boundary. Like that, I know is one thing that I need my sleep. I'm very boundaryed around my sleep. I know that if I don't get the the right amount of sleep, I'm not my best self. So I'm very committed to that so whatever dog I get even though I would love to have a a new puppy it will probably have to be a little bit older that it sleeps that it's potty you know trained to go outside and as you said not eating the furniture (laughs) we got I got we got duped so badly it's really funny uh, I like to say that the people at the rescue kind of like saw me coming. Right. Because I was in such a state of like grief after They Rocky. took advantage of your vulnerability. <laughs> yes and no. That's why we don't make decisions, Eric, for a year. <laughs> so Jamie goes over to the rescue to drop off this check for uh, she had done a fundraiser for the rescue. Yes, I was there. Oh, right, right. Yes, that was amazing. Yeah, so she goes over to drop off this check, and of course I get, you know, she's texting me pictures of her with this little little dog, Ruthie, you know, who Uh who we adopt, and I'm like, all right, I guess it's happening. We're getting a dog. So I go to the rescue to meet the dog myself on my own, and a sweet little dog, very skittish and kind of scared, and the person at the rescue, our friend, 
said, you know what? Let me bring out her brother and you could see more of her personality because they interact really well together. You'll see a different side of her. Said, okay, so this other dog who would eventually be Marty comes out and the two of them are scurrying around on the floor. It was really cute. And I thought to myself, hey, you know what would be really cool? Maybe we should get them both. And that's what we did. I ended up getting both dogs. And Well, I have to tell you, I had a very similar experience to that. And it, it really is true. We shouldn't be making any big decisions after experiencing, you know, a, a, a trauma. And I know it was quite traumatic for you to lose Rocky. But my son saw the, you know, bullseye on my back and he ended up with a new car a week later. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. He really uh, took advantage of that. You know, it is what it is, man. <laughs> it is what it is. I'm not at all unhappy with the dogs. No, know? and I'm, I'm not. It's the least of my concerns. But I have to tell you, I mean, there were a couple other things that were in the works and my friends, you know, basically had to like take my phone from me. So I didn't make any other big decisions. Of, uh, of course. Uh, it's good that you had people around you to help ground you Absolutely. and all that. But I'm glad that it worked out the way it did. And for anybody to be seeing you right now, I mean, you just... Uh, you're in a pretty inspired place uh, in everything that you're doing. So uh, talk a little bit about your practice and about the work that you do with other people. So I started my practice, I, I started in the field, I should say, in the 90s, and I started in addiction, uh, addiction work, because I felt that if I was going to be a therapist, I needed to have knowledge and experience working with addiction because it, you know, penetrates so many different areas, which, so that's where I started. And of course, when you work with addiction, that leads to, to trauma work. So I've done a lot of trauma work and I'm very much about working from the bottom up instead of the top down, because it's very hard to work with people who have had trauma and work with, you know, their prefrontal cortex, right? When they can't even access, right? I'm getting a little, a little too scientific here, but so I'm very holistic and I, and I know that, and as we all know as therapists, that it's our subconscious, subconscious mind that's driving the train. So I felt it was very important to to learn methods to work with the subconscious mind. And of course, CBT is wonderful and talk therapy is wonderful and it definitely has its place. And I do a lot of talk therapy, but I also do a lot of EMDR, a lot of uh, hypnotherapy, working with the subconscious mind. And the results are just so powerful and life-changing, truly. And then I went to get... Uh, I wanted to become a Reiki master. I, I'm a seeker of knowledge. I want to know as much as I can. Uh, I read a lot. I only read books that are relevant to, tr to trauma or ego state or whatever it might be. I'm not interested in, in fiction at all because um, I just I like as much as much knowledge as possible. And um and I and I really work a lot with uh a lot of inner child work, a lot of parts work um and family of origin because again I feel like 
for me anyway, in my opinion, I don't know how to, I can be very solution focused as well, but if somebody really wants to heal, I, I feel it's very important to address the earlier years, the family of origin, the core beliefs, and really uh, dive deep into, through inner child work, healing those parts of us that, of course, were helpful and survival mechanisms for people. But as we know, what were coping mechanisms and survival mechanisms in the early years don't always serve us when we're, we get older. I'm pretty passionate about my work. I just want everybody to, which I know is a big dream, but I, I, there's so much hardship and the world is so heavy and, you know, there's so much out of our control, but there's so much in our control and we don't have to live like victims. We can live in our power and, uh, and live our best life once given the tools to do that. And I just want everybody, to, you know, like I was saying, it's a tall order, but I just, I would love to see everybody living healthy and happy and in peace and joy and having fun and being playful because that's very important too. If someone wanted to work with you, what would be the best way for uh, somebody to get in touch with you or find out more about your work? So they can certainly call anytime. I'm pretty, um, I'm, I'm very responsive. Uh, I am in session typically most of the day and with my children, but I will always get back to you. I have a website. Uh, they can call me and... Could you give us the website? Sure. It's just easy www.jillbershad.com So what else, Jill? I think we said it all. I think we said it all, Eric. We covered a lot of ground here. I think we said it all. And if anybody wants to reach out to me, I want to say this, who's been through something similar or I'm a, I I want to, I'm, I'm here and I'm available to talk to anybody who feels like I may be able to support them in any way. And it's Jill Bershad. Dot com. Yep. All right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jill, I can't thank you enough for coming here and joining me. Obviously, this was a heavy lifting type of thing to talk about, and I appreciate your willingness to come here and share about something so personal with uh, my podcast and the folks who would be wanting to listen to this. So thank you very much. Well, I want to say thank you to, to you, Eric. I mean, you certainly make it easy to do this, to sit and talk. Obviously we're friends, but even more, you know, more so it's just your nature. I wouldn't want to do this with anybody but you. And, um, and again, I I don't want there to be a stigma around this. And that's really why I was willing to do it because I want people to know that it just doesn't have to be like that. I think your willingness to share about something so personal, I think it really does work in service of other people with similar experience, the fact that you are relating this in such an open and vulnerable way. I think it's kind of like what Brene Brown <laughs> famously says about shame, that the opposite of shame is vulnerability. And right. that if we're willing to talk about these things that might be seen as stigmatized or shameful, once it's out in the open, it's right. out in the open, there's nothing to... There's nothing to worry about keeping secret or hide. You've just you've just done it. And I think you've set a really good example for 
maybe other people who are experiencing or wrestling with some something right. similar. Well, I want people to know that we don't have to be scared to talk about this. We have to talk about this. It's critical that more people start talking about this. I, I think you're right. Yeah. Thank you again. And um, It is my pleasure. You are so welcome, Eric. All right. Ladies yeah. and gentlemen, Jill Brashad. <laughs>